passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. This past summer, I was a part of a reading group made up of other uh, EFCA pastors from the state of Iowa, and we read uh, through a book called The Unwavering Pastor. And uh, it, the, the focus of this book was on how to pastor well in an increasingly polarized and post-Christian world. And one of the things that I appreciated probably the most from this book is that at one point he argues that there has been a shift in our culture in the questions that people are asking outside of the church, specifically questions toward Christianity. And he argues that no longer are people asking the question, is Christianity true? But now people are asking the question, is Christianity good? In other words, we live in a culture that doesn't necessarily question the validity of Christianity's claims, or at least those are less important, because even if they are true, people outside of the church are convinced that Christianity is harmful, that it's not just not true, but before we can even begin to address those questions, we have to address a different stumbling block first, and that is, is Christianity good for the world? Now, the assumption of those kind of questions is a very clear no. No, Christianity isn't good for the world. There are a number of people today who would echo the words of the author Charles Marksman, who called Christianity, quote, the 2,000-year sickness of Christianity. And we might hear that and find it offensive. And I hope, certainly hope, that we disagree with it, with those who would claim that Christianity has not been good for the world. But at the same time, we have to ask ourselves, is there any proof? Is there any proof that Christianity and Jesus have changed the world for better? And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks in this Advent series, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? Every week we'll look at a different area of our culture, um, of our world, of our worldview, and consider how Jesus' birth has forever transformed the world. And even if we are to take the, and we're just going to set the gospel aside for a moment, which sounds horrible to say, but bear with me. I, I want to just argue that the coming of Jesus has forever transformed the world, not just when it comes to salvation, but in countless other areas as well, that the world owes an incalculable debt to the coming of Jesus. And that's not just true of Christians, but also non-Christians as well. One of the best books that I've read over the last several years, uh, or maybe at least the, the most refreshing book that I've read, is Tom Holland's book, Dominion. And the subtitle there kind of explains what the book is about, how the Christian revolution remade the world. In it, Tom Holland, and that's not the Spider-Man actor, if you were wondering, a different guy, a British author and historian that threw me for a whirl when I first picked it up. Uh, he reveals that in spite of being an atheist, his entire understanding of the world has been shaped by Jesus. And in explaining how he, an atheist, and why he, an atheist, would write a book on Christianity shaping the world, he writes this. 
The more years I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, so the more alien I increasingly found it. The values of Leonidas of Sparta, whose people had practiced a peculiarly murderous form of eugenics and trained their young to kill inferior peoples by night, were nothing that I recognized as my own. Nor were those of Caesar, who reported to have killed a million Frenchmen and enslaved a million more. It was not just the extremes of callousness that unsettled me, but the complete lack of any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. Why did I find this disturbing? Because in my morals and ethics, I was not a Spartan or a Roman at all. That my belief in God had faded over the course of my teenage years did not mean that I had ceased to hold Christian values. Assumptions that I had grown up with about how a society should properly be organized and the principles that it should uphold were not bred of classical antiquity, still less of, quote, human nature, but very distinctively of that civilization's Christian past. And that's what this book is all about. It is an argument that our culture owes an immeasurable debt to Christianity, that even the critiques of Christian hypocrisy and the failures of the church They have teeth, so to speak, because they are rooted in values that are shaped not by nature, not by classical Greece, but by the God of Christianity. And so it's within that spirit that I want us this morning to to look at how Jesus' birth completely transformed our world's understanding of virtue, morals, and most importantly, compassion. We're going to look at this in two parts. First, the origin of compassion, being in the God of compassion. And then second, how that compassion transformed the entire world. Now, before we do that, I just want to issue one more caveat. And that is simply this. When I claim that the, world's, the world values compassion because of Jesus, I'm not saying that people were not compassionate before Jesus. There surely were compassionate people in ancient Rome before Christianity took over the world, just as there are compassionate people today among people who have never heard the gospel. What I am suggesting is that the widespread cultural value of compassion finds its roots in Jesus' birth. So let's go ahead and look at this topic, but before we do so, would you join me in prayer? Father, we ask for your help this morning. We ask that as we consider the way you have forever changed the world through the coming of Jesus, that you would inspire us to wonder and to awe and to worship. We also ask that you would, through your spirit, motivate us to increasingly Christ-like living and service, that we would follow in the footsteps of our King, that we would be a people of compassion and mercy and love. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I I suppose it would be somewhat misleading to say that compassion starts with Jesus at Christmas. And yet, because the entire Bible points us to Jesus, and in Jesus we see the mission to, to spread the gospel to all nations, it's probably safe enough of a claim. But what we see is that the compassion of Jesus, the compassion of God, is on display from the very beginning of the Bible. Moments after humanity rebels against God in the garden, God responds not primarily with judgment, though there is that, but he responds with mercy. 
He responds with compassion. So we read this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. In the context there, it's in the face of rebellion, God does not pour out wrath, but instead clothes humanity to cover their shame. And a few chapters later, after wickedness has spread all over the face of the world, God regrets creating humanity because of their rampant wickedness, and yet still, God does not give up on his creation, but instead, he preserves humanity with a remnant, and that's namely Noah and his family. And this cycle of compassion in the face of human wickedness and rebellion, it it continues throughout the scriptures. We see that God is patient. He is compassionate. He is merciful to humanity in spite of their sin. He remains committed to Abraham and to his family in spite of numerous examples of unbelief, of depravity, of selfishness, and more and more and more, if you've read the book of Genesis. During the Exodus, we see that God is motivated to deliver Israel out of slavery to the Egyptians by compassion. Exodus chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God rescues the people of Israel out of slavery, and yet they almost instantly turn their backs on him. They complain about him. And Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, it contains more and more and more examples of God's compassion, his patience, and his mercy. Israel complains about God, and yet God is merciful. Israel worships other gods, and yet he remains committed to them. Israel refuses to listen to the commands of God, and yet God does not give up on them. Time and time and time again, God pours out mercy and grace upon his people. No wonder then, when we get to the end of the book of Exodus, God describes himself to Moses and he says this in Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is Israel's experience with this God throughout it all. He remains compassionate and merciful to a people who repeatedly turn their backs on him. And this pattern continues once Israel enters the promised land. Just read the book of Judges and you'll see that Israel is constantly running to other gods and it is only after God allows them to suffer humiliation or subjection to other nations that they eventually return to him. Judges 2 actually provides us with a summary of the whole book. Notice specifically verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Our church has been going through First and Second Samuel over the last couple, uh, now probably the last couple years. And we've seen this pattern over and over in our time in these books. Even when Israel turns their back on God, 
he remains steadfastly committed to them. We've seen that with David over the last two months, because even when David does the unthinkable, God continues to show compassion and mercy to David. And if you were to go throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you would see this constant, that God is a God of mercy and compassion. Even when Israel is destroyed because of their idolatry and rebellion, even when Judah is carried into exile as a form of judgment for their sins, that doesn't mean that God has given up on his people. God is still merciful. God still shows compassion. God has not abandoned his people. Consider this promise from Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. The story of God's compassion for his wayward people is found throughout the pages of the Bible. But there's another way that God is a God of compassion on display in the scriptures. Not only does God have compassion on people who have turned their backs on him, but he also has a special compassion for those who are afflicted and suffering and poor. This was unthinkable to the surrounding nations. Their gods were with the people of power, not with the powerless. The common thinking of the day, whether it was in ancient Babylon or ancient Greece or ancient Rome, was that you were on your own. If you were poor or afflicted, it was because the gods had turned their backs on you. And to help people in their destitution might even be going against the will of the gods. To suffer was a form of divine justice. And to alleviate suffering was actually a form of injustice. One historian describes it this way, quote, In the pagan world, and especially among the philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect and pity as a pathological emotion. Because mercy involves providing unearned help or relief, it is contrary to justice. Philosophers taught that, quote, mercy indeed is not governed by reason at all, end quote, and humans must, quote, learn to, to curb the impulse. The cry of the undeserving for mercy must go unanswered. Pity was a defect of character unworthy of the wise and excusable only to those who have not yet grown up. This is the world's view of compassion. And the fact that we find statements like that almost funny, if it weren't just so tragic, betrays the ways that our world has been forever transformed by the God of the Scriptures. The God of the Bible is the exact opposite of the pagan gods of those days. In the law, God gives plenty of commands, specific, detailed commands on how to take care of the poor. Some of the harshest rebukes in the Bible come to God's people because they have abused the poor. 
They have neglected their responsibility to take care of them the way God has commanded them to do so. Throughout the Psalms, throughout the Proverbs, we have dozens of examples of God's explicit explicit compassion for and commitment to the poor and the vulnerable. Just a few examples. Psalm 35, all my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Psalm 40, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Psalm 113, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Proverbs 14, whoever oppresses a poor man Man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And we could go on and on and on. The God of the Bible is a God of compassion. And this is perhaps no, nowhere else more clearly seen than in the Christmas story where God turns the world upside down. Because when God sends his son, he is not born in a palace or in a place of power to a queen, but he is born to an unwed Jewish teenager in a stable in Bethlehem. Mary herself is in awe of God's plan in choosing her, and she picks up on this theme of God's compassion for the downtrodden and vulnerable in her song in Luke chapter 1. Consider these words. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with many good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever." The heart of Mary's song here is an absolute wonder and awe that God would use someone like her. Just briefly notice, she worships God because he looked on the humble estate of his servant. Verse 48, she acknowledges that God is a God of mercy and compassion. In verse 50, she acknowledges not only that God is compassionate toward the weak and powerless, but those who are proud, those who are opposed to God, he will cast down in verses 51 and 52. She worships God because he fills the hungry in verse 53. And she says all of this because of her confidence, not just that God has chosen an insignificant girl on the fringes of society, but primarily because God is a God who will do just as he has said he will do in ages past, as we see in verse 55. God is a God of compassion. He's in the business of working with and working for those who are vulnerable and outside the places of power. But that's not all we see. It's not just in in Mary's song that we see this commitment from God. It's also in in who the first people are to hear the, the news of the birth of Jesus. It's the shepherds. Consider Luke 2. 
And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. In the first century, shepherds were on the fringes of society. They were looked down upon. They were seen as a necessary evil. They were a source of food. Sheep were a source of food and clothing and sacrifices for the temple. But the people who watched over them were considered to be worthless. According to Jewish purity laws, shepherds were unclean and therefore were not able to worship in the proper Jewish way in the temple. Later, Jewish laws actually took this a step further, saying that shepherds were untrustworthy and therefore their witness was unacceptable in courts of law. We can also see that these specific shepherds are poor because they are watching the sheep at night. They don't have hired hands doing that. In short, when we get to Luke chapter 2, this, these are some of the last people that we would expect to, to find in the birth narrative of the king of the entire cosmos. It's absolutely astonishing that the royal herod, heralds that are announcing the birth of the king, that's what these angels are in this passage. They're announcing the birth of the king with song. It's astonishing that they would be making this announcement to the shepherds. It's even more astonishing that these men, these shepherds, are entrusted with the message, that they become heralds themselves, the first heralds of the arrival of the king. And yet that's the way God works. Not only does he have compassion for the poor and the needy and the outcasts, but he also uses them as a part of his story and his plan. You see, the God of the Bible is a God of compassion. But how did that compassion transform the entire world? That's what I want us to look at in the balance of our time this morning, to consider just how this otherworldly compassion of God became a part of the fabric of our society, as common as the air we breathe oftentimes completely unacknowledged. I love the way Tom Holland puts it in his book. It is the incomplete revolutions which are remembered. The fate that awaits those revolutions which triumph is to be taken for granted. And that's what we see with the compassion of Jesus. So totally did it change our world that it's taken for granted. To understand the way the birth of Jesus transforms our understanding of compassion, virtue, morality, we have to first understand what things used to be like. Earlier I said the philosophers of ancient Greece and Rome looked down on the notion of compassion and mercy, but what about the gods 
of those society. These idolatrous gods, in short, were completely night and day different from the God of the Bible. Historian Rodney Stark writes it this way, aside from having some magical powers and perhaps the gift of immortality, the gods had normal human concerns and shortcomings. They ate, drank, loved, loved, envied, fornicated, cheated, lied, and otherwise set morally unedifying examples. The gods were largely uninterested in human affairs, except when they chose to be vindictive towards humans. The Bible reveals God to be a God who is steadfast, never changing, constant, utterly dependable. And yet the gods of ancient Greece and Rome were subject to quick, unannounced, and severe mood swings. Their only concern for humanity was to receive sacrifices from them. We might ask, did the gods actually care about people, especially those who were too poor or too sick to be able to offer sacrifices? And the answer is a resounding no. Let me share one example with you from the late 300s under the reign of a Roman emperor uh, commonly known as Julian the Apostate. He earned that nickname, the Apostate, because he was the last pagan emperor of Rome. A generation earlier, his uncle Constantine uh, miraculously, in this astonishing way, converts to Christianity, legalizes Christianity throughout the Roman Empire, uh, institutes it as an official religion of the Roman Empire. Christianity begins to, to spread massively under the influence of Constantine. Julian, his nephew, ascends to the throne a generation later, and he does all in his power to return Rome back to the worship of what he saw as the true gods, the, the, the real gods. He thought that Christianity was an abomination, a scourge on his empire, and so he wants to return everything to the way that it once was, to undo all of the work of his uncle. And so in an attempt to return Rome to its roots, he institutes large wholesale changes to welfare reform in the Roman Empire. He sends out letters to, to priests of his favorite gods and goddesses, encouraging them to, quote, teach the people that doing good works was our practice of old, end quote. So he's instituting this welfare reform in the Roman Empire, and he says, we need to, to teach people the, the true way of our gods, of our goddesses, and that means to do good works, to take care of your neighbor. But there was a problem with this command from Julian. It's because doing good works had never been the practice of old. In fact, it was completely and utterly foreign to the priests and to the gods that they served. Bear with this lengthy quote from Tom Holland. You're noticing I'm, I'm quoting a lot this morning. The gods cared nothing for the poor, to think otherwise was, as the philosopher Pephiphary said, airhead talk. When Julian quoted Homer on the laws of hospitality and how even beggars might appeal to them, he was merely drawing attention to the scale of his delusion. The heroes of the Iliad, favorites of the gods, had scorned the weak and downtrodden. The starving deserved no sympathy. Beggars were best rounded up and deported. Pity risked undermining a wise man's self-control. Certainly there was little in the character of the gods whom Julian so adored, nor in the teaching of the philosophers whom he so admired, to justify any assumption that the poor, just by virtue of their poverty, had a right to aid. 
The young emperor, sincere though he was in his hatred of Christian teachings and in regretting their impact upon all that he held most dear, was blind to the irony of his plan for combating them, that it was itself irredeemably Christian. Already here, we see the transforming work of Jesus. This pagan king rejects Jesus, and yet he so admires the teachings of Jesus that he co-opts them to be the teachings of his gods. There's just one problem, the teaching of his gods uh, of compassion, uh, the teachings of Jesus and his compassion utterly foreign to the gods that he worshiped. Paganism was no match for the compassion of Jesus expressed through the obedience of Jesus's church. Julian is perhaps most well known for saying, quote, how apparent to everyone it is and how shameful that our own people lack support from us when Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Christians took seriously the commands of Scripture, commands to remember the poor, like in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, to meet the physical needs of others as evidence of one's love for the Lord Jesus himself. So we read in 1 John chapter 3, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? What we see from the earliest pages of the church in Acts, meeting the needs of others, supporting others in famine and need, taking regular offerings and collections to care for the poor. This is not just true for the first generation of the church, but it is true for the church throughout the ages. And this wasn't just collection for for Christians, taking care of, of Christians. It was also done for those outside the church. This is what Paul alludes to when he's writing to the church in Galatia, when he says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. One church leader from the, first cent- or from the third century describes why. Why the people of God were committed to caring, not just for their own, but to all people. He writes it this way, There is nothing remarkable in cherishing merely our own people with the due attentions of love. Thus the good was done to all men, not merely to the household of faith. The scale of this compassion on the downtrodden is absolutely astonishing because Christianity took root not primarily among the rich and those who had lots of resources at their disposal, but among the poor and the needy themselves. And yet in the year 251, the Bishop of Rome writes a letter describing the church in Rome and how they are meeting the needs of 1,500 widows, completely meeting their needs. Tertullian was a church leader in the late 2nd century, and he explains how a group of people can show such compassion to those who are around him. They say that he says this on the monthly day, each puts in a small donation, but only if it be his pleasure. And only if he is able, for there is no compulsion, all is voluntary. These gifts are to support poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls of destitute means and parents and of old persons confined now to the house. In short, compassion was the passion of the people of God. And they changed the world and accomplished the impossible 
because of it. But that compassion wasn't just for the poor. It was for all who were afflicted and suffering, including those who were sick, sick and diseased. You don't get very far in the Gospels if you're reading through the Gospels before you encounter Jesus' own compassion and concern for those who are sick and diseased. And that commitment is actually seen from Jesus' church as well. Ancient cities were a cesspool of disease. They were overcrowded, to put it mildly. Estimates put Rome's population density at about 300 people per acre. If you were wondering what that actually looks like, modern-day Manhattan is about 100 people per acre. So three times as crowded as modern-day Manhattan. Sanitation was non-existent. Soap had not yet been invented. And so sickness was everywhere. And the the combination of filthy living conditions and overcrowding and no form of medicine meant that plagues and sicknesses could spread very quickly and could devastate large segments of the population. And so it was common practice in those days when a plague or disease would hit a city, you would do all you could to disassociate with the sick. If you could leave town you would leave town. If not, then you would cast out your sick relatives onto the street. You would not allow your sick relatives back in your house. Dionysius was a church leader. In the year 250, he wrote this. At the first onset of the disease, the pagans pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. These pagans couldn't offer prayers and sacrifices in their temples because the first to leave were their priests, and by extension their gods. The gods didn't care and wouldn't listen. It's in this context that the church's commitment not only to stay, but also to care for the sick is completely astonishing. Christians were committed to caring for the sick, not only for their sick, but also for their sick pagan neighbors who had been cast out on the street and left for dead. They didn't provide significant care, but oftentimes all that was needed was someone to provide food or water for these people who were too weak to do that for themselves, and then their bodies would take care of everything else and would recover on their own. And so because of this basic care, Christians save countless lives because of their compassion. Dionysius continues in that same letter, most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of elders, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that in death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith seems in every way the equal to martyrdom. The compassion of Christ 
through his church, transformed the world. That was true in the first centuries, and it is true to this day as well. We've only had the chance to look at three centuries. Don't worry, we're not going any further. And yet we can already see compassion rooted in the love of Jesus transformed the world. In fact, that's the one truth I hope we take home this morning. It's simply this. The world has forever been changed by the Lord's compassion. The world has forever been changed by the Lord's compassion. Before the coming of Christ, the notion that you should show compassion toward others was an oddity of the Jewish people. Most of the rest of the world, especially those in the West, like in Rome and Greece, saw it not as an admirable virtue, but as a weakness. And yet the birth of Jesus and the spread of the gospel changed that. The world has forever been transformed by the Lord's compassion. Even those who are hostile to the gospel see the idea of compassion for the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed as a good thing. Why? It's because just as as with Julian the Apostate in the 300s, their very values are rooted in the compassion of Jesus. The world has forever been changed by the Lord's compassion. This is true when it comes to caring for others, and it is even more true when it comes to the gospel itself. Because the gospel reveals that God not only has compassion for the poor, the destitute, the sick, the needy, the afflicted. He also has compassion on those who have rebelled against him, those who have turned their backs on him, those who are spiritually poor, those who are spiritually destitute, those who are spiritually sick, spiritually needy, spiritually afflicted. The wonder of Christmas is that it it was fundamentally an act of compassion from God toward those who were in desperate need of it. Earlier I said that one of the reasons why pagan philosophers were so opposed to the idea of of mercy and compassion is because they saw it as an act of injustice. And when it comes to the compassion of God, it is, in a sense, an act of injustice to have compassion and mercy on people who have rebelled against God, have turned their backs on God, and for God to look the other way and to welcome them back. But that's where the the gospel shows us how mercy and justice can coexist, can meet. And that's the wonder of Christmas, the wonder of the gospel. The world has has forever been changed by the Lord's compassion. And because of of Christmas, that means that you are welcomed into the family of God because of his compassion. And as we celebrate Christmas this season, don't lose sight of that glorious, wonderful truth that the world has has forever been changed by the Lord's compassion. And that is not an injustice, but because of the gospel, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, a wonderful display of mercy, love, grace, and justice. The world has forever been changed by the compassion of our God.
Thanks be to this God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy, for your love, and for your compassion. God, in your mercy, we ask that you would help us to be a people who just as those saints who have gone before us have been a people of of compassion, that you would enable us to be just like them, reflecting you, our King. Help us, God. Help us this Christmas to marvel at your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.